Hello again, and welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on, on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi, and I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. And with that in my background, it has motivated me to put this program together as my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima. I wish to lend my voice to the growing anti-nuclear movement worldwide. Later in the program, in the podcast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Robert Gould, president of the San Francisco chapter of the Physicians of Social Responsibility on radiation dangers, public health, and what, if anything, we need to do to protect ourselves. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2011. Day 179 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th. And here is the latest nuclear news. We'll start in the United States because the North Anna nuclear power plant, which was virtually at the epicenter of uh, the big earthquake a few weeks ago on the East Coast, nearly two weeks after the quake, the operating company, Dominion, is still unable to say whether the quake shook the facility more than it was designed to handle. I don't have those numbers, according to Daniel Stoddard, Dominion's Senior Vice President for Nuclear nuclear Operations. Uh, It will be another week before final analysis of the shake plates, which recorded ground motion at the site, is finished, he said, although a Dominion spokesman said that they had promised the analysis by last Friday. It's just taking much longer. In the control room, a 1970s-era psychic uh, detect—excuse me, seismic detector failed to record data for a critical eight seconds when primary power went down. And being in California, I know that eight seconds during a quake is a very long time. The company has now added a backup battery to the unit to prevent a recurrence of this problem. Now, Stoddard, the senior vice president, did say that a preliminary analysis showed jolting at or slightly above the intensity that could damage non-critical facilities, such as the administration building, but such shaking would not damage the two critical nuclear containment structures, he said. And Dominion has been saying that the plant, since the accident, that the plant was built to withstand up to 6.1. But here's another piece of information to consider. On March 28th, in the wake of Fukushima, Dominion handed out their State of the Station report. Uh, what they said in this report was that the existing reactors, they were very proud of this, the existing reactors are designed to withstand a seismic event of up to 5.9 on the Richter scale. So back before it was a crucial piece of information, they were saying 5.9. The initial read on the quake that happened on the East Coast was 5.9. It's since been taken down a notch to 5.8, but you know, that's really close. In addition, Dominion has been discussing their ongoing plans for a third reactor that is in the permitting process. This reactor was originally to have been situated atop several known seismic faults, much like the current reactors are. Uh, but the master plan has since been withdrawn to move Reactor 3, quote, a significant distance, unquote, from the original location. The question here being the interpretation of the word significant, which is one of those wobbly words. Uh, Fukushima in Japan, the government was talking about whether the radiation was of a significant level or not. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they have already broken ground. for Bulldozers have broken ground for this first reactor, and they could receive a license for it as early as 2013 or 2014. 
According to Lou Zeller, who is of the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, which is seeking to stop construction of a proposed third North Anna reactor, the power plant should not have been built there in the first place, and Mother Nature has just weighed in. The group, the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, has won a minor victory because the NRC's Atomic Safety and Licensing Board panel has agreed to hear their objections to the third reactor. That's very kind of the NRC, considering that their motto is protecting people and the environment. Hmm. Here's another quote on that story that uh, Victor Galinsky, who was an NRC commissioner at the time of the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster in 1979, said that he was concerned that safety at plants like North Anna were not being reviewed with our current understanding of earthquakes. Quote, it is important to review the seismic design of the plant in terms of current knowledge, he said. Instead, the NRC has been relicensing plants without any real safety review. They do not question any of the original licensing conditions. They only check to see whether the plant has a program to deal with old equipment. It's an irresponsible approach. That from a former NRC commissioner. Now, Arnie Gunderson has weighed in. There's a new audio of him being interviewed by Dr. Helen Caldicott, two people on this planet who are totally out of denial about what happens with nuclear reactors and energy. And it's quite a great conversation that they are having with each other. Here are a few highlights of the information that Arnie was putting out. He said that in Fukushima, the reactors continue to admit significant, there's that word again, but he quantifies it, significant quantities of radioactive gases. Last number he saw was a gigabecquerel a day. They don't know for sure. It's just an estimate based on radiation exposure at a fence post at the plant. But it contains cesium and also strontium and polonium. Uh, he said that the tent that's being put over the reactors to help the workers on site isn't really helping with the radioactivity release because the radioactivity is trapped inside the tent and it needs to be pumped out through stacks. Radiation will still be released, but at a higher elevation, which means that with the winds, it will disperse further. Uh, Arnie has a concern that while it seems that Unit 1 and 2 are pretty much under control at this point, there has not been a picture of the Unit 3 in months. And he said, quote, I find that very strange. He also said that if another aftershock happens, and any of the reactor buildings are no longer standing, leave Japan. And uh, one other quote from him, that there is a denial of the severity of the accident by the business community and government in Tokyo. They are ignoring and denying the severity of the problem. Some towns in the Northwest Corridor received 50 rem of radiation, and people in these towns receive 50 rems. That means that they have an almost 50-50 chance of cancer. Uh, that information just came out now, six months after the accident. If you wish to listen to this full interview, and I certainly encourage you to do so, it is available on ifyoulovethisplanet.org. Uh, one further point on the radiation from Fukushima, that uh, workers there are now allowed to operate in the crippled plant up to a dose of 250 millisieverts total dosage. Now, at Chernobyl, just for comparison, people exposed to 300 mil, excuse me, 350 millisieverts were relocated away from Chernobyl and not allowed to return. In most countries, 
the maximum annual dosage for a worker is 20 milliservants. In Fukushima now, they've raised it to 250. The allowable dose for someone living close to a nuclear plant in the rest of the world is one milliservant a year. So the workers are getting dosed at an extremely high level. Now, there's a lot of confusion around the subject of radiation, and I'm hoping that our guest today can help clarify our stance. So there's so much more that he could be talking about. Um, Physicians for Social Responsibility is the medical and public health voice working to prevent the use or spread of nuclear weapons and to slow, stop, and reverse global warming and the toxic degradation of the environment great aims. And our guest today is Robert M. Gould, MD. He is a pathologist in San Jose and has been so since 1981. Since 1989, he has been president of the San Francisco Bay Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, which we'll refer to as PSR. And in 2003, he was president of the National PSR. He's been a leading member of the Peace Caucus of the American Public Health Association, for which he is current chairperson. Dr. Gold has been recognized as a leading expert on the environmental and public health impacts of nuclear weapons. And, of course, radiation release extends to nuclear reactors. Dr. Gould, welcome to the program, Nuclear Hot Seat. Uh, so glad to be on. Thank you. Wonderful. Now, as I said, there were many different readings. We hear about Becquerels. We hear about servits and milliservits. It's a confusing array of information, as well as what is a level of safe exposure. Let's take some baby steps, and can you orient us to a more transparent understanding of how to read these radiation figures and start to have a comprehension of what they mean for us and our health? Well, I think a good starting point, particularly in terms of uh, the radiation levels that are measured uh, atmospherically or near nuclear uh, sites, uh, what we're really concerned about, on the one hand, is what is the absorbed dose of radiation that an individual would receive. And there, and that's a measurement of the energy of the radiation. And the traditional uh, way of measuring that is to our uh, units such as RADs, which refer to radiation absorbed dose. Uh, they measure the amount of energy deposited in a given amount of tissue. In this, in this case, that energy would be a measurement of energy is 100 ergs per gram of tissue. And uh, then you have other you know, measurements which are multipliers of that. So, for example, a gray is a unit of absorbed radiation dose equal to 100 rads. Now, when you're talking about uh, REMS, which is uh, radiation equivalents of, of man or sieverts, which are then 100 rems, equivalent to 100 rads is equal to gray, you're getting into more precision in terms of what does that mean biologically. So in the sense that, you know, we have different types of tissue in our body, and these these different organs absorb radiation differently. And also the type of particle that uh, is involved with the radiation uh, has to be evaluated differently. So, in other words, if you're uh, the other thing to consider in terms of the particulate nature of energy are alpha particles, which are the largest, uh, beta particles, then uh, gamma radiation. Gamma radiation, and just getting away from the measurement for a second, but just to be able to describe the different types of radiation, 
of very high energy, uh, this, again, gamma radiation, um, and they penetrate uh, tissue, like x-rays. They, they go into the tissue, and they can cause uh, genetic damage by uh, the high energy uh, having an impact on the chromosomes, the DNA, that have our genetic uh, information. That's the gamma radiation. That's the gamma radiation. Mm -hmm. And then when you're talking about, um, at the other end, alpha particles, because of the size of the particles, they can actually can't penetrate skin uh, and get into the body. Uh, they can be stopped by a piece of paper just because of the relative uh, size of them. However, if they got into a cut, if they were breathed in, if you ingested them in food, they're actually much higher energy particles than than the gamma than the gamma rays that pass right through you. So the the problems with the alpha particles is that if you do ingest them or get them through a cut or through a fire, you know, whatever, that you'd get them into your body and you get one of these particles lodging in 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 your body, they can then uh, irradiate surrounding tissue. So it's a difference than, if I could just break this down conceptually, into, if you will, the, the rays, the total body exposure, versus, say, eating contaminated fish that has a certain level of radioactive cesium or radioactive uh, plutonium or uh, uranium. If you have an alpha particle, again, in your body, you could have, they're very highly energetic particles that could then, if they're large, say, in a, uh, the cell of the, uh, of the bronchus, the tube that your air travels through into your lung, they could then, by being stuck there, irradiate surrounding cells. And as opposed to something passing through you and you've been subject to a certain dose, they're in your body and then they could kick off a cancer by contiguity. So when you're getting back, and I'm sorry, I, I may be making this even more complicated than my intention or your intention having me on, is that when we're talking about REMs and then sieverts, which are 100 REM, we're now talking about a calculation that not only measures the radiation, but takes into account what type of particle that you have. So that if, you, if that radiation dose was due to an alpha particle that gets inside you, you sort of make a correction to up the dose of what your absorbed radiation would be. That's biologically important for you. So you make that type of correction. You also make corrections depending on what body part it may or may not be lodged in. But that's the basic sort of framework to, to evaluate this. Now, having said all that in terms of the different sources of radiation and the, the different properties of the particles and the waves, we do know that from the standpoint of whole body radiation, that if you get up to a certain dose, a cumulative dose, or a, a very acute dose of a high level of radiation, anywhere above one sievert, which in that case is 100 rem, or roughly 100 rads, you can make that calculation that I just mentioned, you begin to develop uh, health issues related to acute radiation sickness and acute radiation exposure. And when you get up to those levels, like would like some of the workers in Fukushima who were trying to clean up or deal with the explosions, whatever, if you get an acute exposure that, that, that is that high, you can then have a profound effects 
from the radiation sickness that are deployed on our um, hematologic system, the, the system that uh, forms the blood cells, uh, which include our immunity to diseases and things of that sort, uh, you could have damage to the hematologic system, uh, even lower, uh, you know, at the lower level of above um, uh, one sievert, you can have gastrointestinal uh, problems, diarrhea, and uh, a, colla a potential collapse of the gastrointestinal system. The issue here is that in cells within the gastrointestinal system, those that line our uh, bowels, our stomach, that, that type of thing, these cells rapidly divide normally, and cells that rapidly divide are susceptible to the impacts of uh, radiation, and that is also true of, of the cells that populate our bone marrow that give rise to our red blood cells and white blood cells. Higher levels of, uh, of a, acute exposure, you know, when we're talking about somewhere in a level of six sieverts, but again, it may vary on the individual, can lead to uh, central nervous system effects, which is the brain, spinal cord, that type of function. Mm -hmm. What does it do to the reproductive system? Well, the reproductive. Well, let me let me just finish with, with, okay. with this thought. If, if you get to the, the central nervous system in those doses, it's you almost inexorably uh, progress to death. There's nothing you can really do to stop that. Now, if you're talking about the reproductive system, yes, that can that can that can have effects as well. But that's not going to be. I was more dealing with the impacts of radiation sickness in terms of uh, the individual's immediate problem in terms of. Uh, significant disability and potential death. It, you know, we've been following the story, the, these stories yeah. very closely, and uh, many, uh, through tweets and blog posts and email, many of the symptoms that you were describing with, uh, you know, the nausea and the diarrhea and the various other uh, 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 symptoms have been showing up throughout northern, certainly northern Japan, and it's being reported by hospital workers that this is what's been going on, even if the government hasn't been stepping up and and taking responsibility. Right. I mean, you know, again, you'd have to know what the levels of of exposure are, and again, uh, the people who are in the, who are in that area are not just say, getting exposed to what might be in the plume coming out of Fukushima, et cetera, but they may well be exposed to deposits uh, that get into on the grass that then are, you know, cows eat, get into the milk. So there's a lot of dietary exposures that if the levels are high enough as well can also uh, lead to uh, illness. Of the mm -hmm. and, so and again, the, the cumulative effects, uh, you know, if, if you have... Uh, very high acute doses, certainly that would have impacts, acute impacts on whatever dividing cells you have in, in your reproductive system, and that would also depend on what age you are in terms of uh, when when that type of, uh, you know, uh, differentiation of the reproductive cells occur. And certainly the radiation is extremely uh, important when considering uh, uh, exposures to pregnant women and the, the developing child, and certainly children, uh, particularly in the early years of life, mm -hmm. which is why we're very concerned, uh, particularly in Japan, uh, on twofold. One is what are the levels that 
people are getting exposed to in terms of the milk and uh, you know other other types of dairy products, and which is a reason in the case of Japan that it made perfect sense, for example, to distribute uh, potassium iodide because uh, potassium iodide as a substance blocks the incorporation of radioactive iodine into the thyroid gland, which is very important for a whole host of uh, metabolic processes and certainly for um, you know, the developing child integral to uh, its, its neurological development. So that's a reason for utilizing potassium iodide there mm -hmm. for exposures to radioactive iodine, although that will not, A, block iodine coming into the system. It just serves to block the thyroid from incorporating radioactive iodine, and it certainly won't serve to protect from other uh, deleterious radioactive elements such as radioactive cesium, uh, strontium, uh, plutonium, et, et cetera. And, you know, and, and, I, and I'm saying that as much to point to the uh, utility of using potassium iodide in a setting such as Fukushima. Certainly many people in the wake of Fukushima here in the United States were stockpiling potassium iodide concerns of the Fukushima plume uh, to the point where, you know, uh, shelves are running out of the stuff here. There was a run mm -hmm. on it. And I would just caution people that although that certainly has utility and appropriateness for the types of exposures that people were likely to get in Japan, in the case of us here where the levels are much lower, one has to think about that. One shouldn't just be taking potassium iodide and thinking that's cool because it, it, if you're an older person, not a child, not a pregnant woman, uh, taking potassium iodide could actually have negative impacts on your thyroid function. So, you, so all of this stuff really should be done under the guidance of, of appropriate public health uh, information and uh, from one's personal physician. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Gould, concerning those of us in the United States, um, I, I always provide some holistic health uh, tips at the end just about, you know, keeping one's health at a high level. But what can we or should we be doing here to protect our health from what is already some radiation that has come across and is likely to continue as um, the reactors are still not under control? I don't really have a good answer for that uh, in the sense that uh, the levels, you know, it, it, it's, it's a complicated issue because uh, unfortunately, and I, and I think it's a, you know, it, it's, it's a major critical problem is that we're not getting adequate monitoring of what those, A, what those doses are. In fact, we've cut off the frequency of monitoring where it was uh, inadequate to begin with. You're talking about the United States government? In the, in the, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we're not getting appropriate uh, messages to the public health authorities who should be coming up with this type of uh, uh, guidance for people. So then people are being left in a situation where, <clears throat> you know, they're getting measurements, some measurements in Sacramento or Vancouver where the levels are higher than normal. And this should not be swept under the rug, as many authorities do. Oh, it's just a little level. You're, you know, you take airplane rides all the time and get exposed to radiation. Mm -hmm. You get cancer from radon. You know, all those things are true. I mean, you know, most cancers that people get are due to, you know, some combination of cosmic radiation or 
the radon that's around, but that doesn't negate the fact that even a small number of increased cancers over a population is significant for those individuals who will develop it somewhere down the line. The issue then becomes if those small doses have impacts on a population basis, does that mean that an individual, therefore, should say, my child who needs their milk or other foodstuffs to have normal development should not get those substances because of a slightly increased level measured of radioactive iodine or something else. And that's where it becomes very tough. I mean, it, it, it's somewhere akin to the fact, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, we now know that if you measure the, uh, the content of mother's milk, that there's a whole host of very toxic chemicals that you can find if you if you do that type of testing. But we still make the recommendation in the healthcare system that you, mother's milk is still best, even with the dioxins and everything else that's in it, because of what it provides positively in terms of immune function and developmental function and things like that. I'm not saying this in any way to, to dismiss the fact that, you know, everybody you know, all, all the mothers in the United States and around the world are accumulating these persistent uh, biological toxics. But making a, a clinical recommendation, a, you know, a medical recommendation on have this in your diet or not is tough for those reasons. And we're, we are really unclear about that. Now, in the wake of Fukushima, what actions or studies are being undertaken by PSR? Studies? Well, we're not, we don't, as an organization ourselves, do radiation uh, measurements or, or things like that. What we try to do is interpret the data and rely on a lot of experts that we work with in terms of providing, uh, you know, basic health guidance such as this in terms of what is the radiation, how do we look at it over population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, I think our organization has, for a, you know, for most of our history, relied on a, a, a position that is primary public health and uh, preventative. So I think we do need, in a, for example, in terms of trying to understand what these dosages that are emanating from Fukushima, getting incorporated into seafood, the water off Fukushima, whatever, and whatever might be deposited in our own agriculture here is to say, well, you know, on the one hand, like I just said, I can't tell you or have enough information to say your child should not drink milk because of what you're receiving here as opposed to I could make that recommendation closer to Fukushima, but I think we need to turn our attention to making sure that we don't have an accident like Fukushima in the United States, and we can learn from this on on a number of levels. One is whatever is coming over, we should be monitoring it. We should be getting that information, and it should be made in a way that's translatable to public health authorities who in turn can talk to doctors, nurses, and all other health professionals so we could actually level with people and provide them that information. More fundamentally, and which leads to our activity uh, locally in California and nationwide, is the fact that I think we have more than enough evidence that we can't proceed with this nuclear renaissance, that in the case of California, where we have uh, uh, two major reactors, San Onofre and Diablo Canyon, that are sitting astride 
uh, poorly characterized and adequately categorized faults, like you were indicating at the, be at the beginning of this segment, that we can't afford to uh, keep going on this way, and we should start shutting down, starting the phase out towards shutdown of nuclear power in the United States, and instead using those inordinate subsidies that we have to have clean and sustainable energy to deal with climate change issues. You know, I mean, so that's really where we as an organization have generally been weighing in on those policy issues and providing that type of, uh, you know, public health framework mm -hmm. that uh, we can't take these types of risks. And certainly with about 23 or so uh, reactors around the country having the design of... Uh, of Fukushima. Yeah, the GE Mark I. To, you know, we have to stop those as well. What I'd like to do is find out if there's anybody on the line who has a question uh, for Dr. Robert Gould of the Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, yeah, I've got a question. Um, I read something on the Internet that... Um, the Japanese government spent like $900,000 to downplay this accident. Do you know anything about that? Advertising or, you know, a PR firm? I haven't heard that information uh, specifically. I mean, I'd be interested in the source. But having said that, I think there's been plenty of evidence in reporting across all sorts of media since the time of Fukushima and ultimately admitted by Japanese authorities under pressure that they've downplayed uh, the extent of the damage at the various reactors as well as the emissions that were coming from the facilities. I'm certain that, uh, you know, this has a lot to do with uh, and, and incorporates PR firms of different sorts to uh, allay the, uh, the real concerns of the Japanese people. I mean, you know, this is part and parcel. You know, I would refer you to maybe about three months ago, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, I think his name is Peter Kuznick, had a really exceptional historical article about the whole selling of nuclear power in Japan that is completely consistent with what you're talking about. Uh, here you have a country that was devastated by the twin explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where people were very resistant to... Uh, having nuclear power, and it was a major PR effort that was spearheaded under the aegis of Adams for Peace by the Eisenhower administration that really was looking to uh, sell nuclear power to Japan and was successful in being able to do that. It's only recently, and this was reported uh, around the time of, uh, I remember attending the Hiroshima event in, uh, in Livermore, where uh, on twofold, the Japanese physicians movement, who are allied with us, physician, or Physicians for Social Responsibility is the U.S. affiliate of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and for a long time the Japanese physicians movement uh, in our affiliate, uh, Japanese Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, took a very strong stand against atomic weapons, but they were split on the issue of nuclear power. And Masao Tamanaga, who's the president, actually uh, is from Nagasaki, of Japanese physicians, just prior to Hiroshima Day, came out with a profound statement uh, registering the opposition of the Japanese physicians' movements and nuclear power as well for all the health issues that we're talking about. And similarly, it was reported in the New York Times that the uh, organization, the Hibakusha, the 
the Japanese survivors of the atomic explosions themselves have now come out against nuclear power. They also had been split within their ranks. Both sets of organizations saying we've had the wool pulled over our eyes, uh, you know, uh, all the mm. Been a major propaganda offensive that you know now like sixty years old in this regard. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, two things. First of all, are you familiar with any of the uh, citizen activist networks where people are doing um, readings? Uh, they're doing their own radiation readings, and also we had an interview last week with um, uh, a gentleman from Safecast, Sean Bonner, who was. Uh, actually over in Fukushima and delivering radiation devices that were hooked up that can be hooked up to his main computer, which is compiling a map of what the radiation exposure is. Are you in contact with these groups? Are you familiar with these groups? I'm not in direct uh, contact, although I was uh, hoping uh, to be in contact with one gentleman that I just got an email a few days ago. Uh, who's doing that type of monitoring in uh, California. You know, I'm not expert on either the technology or how one interprets the data. You get into the same questions that if you have some elevated Becquerels that are measured uh, in an ambient level, what to do with that information in terms of recommendations around mm -hmm. like that. So, uh, again, you know, I'm not saying that to dodge the issue. Again, I think these are terrible situations where we have these elevated levels and again you know my focus our focus as an organization mine certainly as well is to uh you know make sure we don't have anything like this in the united states around the world and to stop the uh you know put a moratorium on new nuclear power construction start phasing this stuff out mm -hmm. so i don't know uh what the nature of that technology is the, the problem i would see is a lot of different individuals using a lot of different devices. If that is what's occurring, having a whole host of measurements would be very difficult to interpret. My preference would be, and maybe that's being some combination of idealistic and naive, is that the pressure should be put on the state health authorities, uh, for, you know, the radiological health branch of the California Department of Health Services, for example, to either get this information and standardize it from the individuals who are making such measurements, you know, develop some type of radio, uh, relationship if they're not able to do it themselves, but more importantly, to demand that they get the information from the comprehensive test ban organization that's monitoring the plumes or whatever other types of monitoring in place so they can standardize this and make this stuff available, again, for public health mm -hmm. Practitioners. So, in closing, Dr. Gould, two things. Uh, what is your website? Our uh, website, national website, is www.psr.org. It's pretty easy. And from there, you can get our national posted materials on uh, radiation and health. We have a number of, uh, I, I think, very good fact sheets on that, as well as links to people that we work with, such as Arjun Makajani, Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, IER.org, etc. Uh, and from that uh, website, you can general, depending on where the listeners are, as well find where our local chapters are based. Wonderful. And how might we support you as the organization moves forward? Well, I think that we could uh, certainly, you know, we would love to have the support from the general public to keep our operations and staff going, the usual types of donations and membership for 
people who are interested. But, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, we can and, and are willing to uh, participate as, as we are in the statewide California uh, coalition against uh, nuclear power that's evolving uh, to uh, support local efforts uh, on nuclear power and, and to educate on these issues as well. And uh, I and others uh, do give talks and, you know, give testimony in, in different places. And if people would like to have, you know, some presentation anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour to get into the various issues of nuclear power, we'd be very glad to do it. I do it. Quite Wonderful. Well. And do you have people in Southern California as well? Our, uh, we have a chapter in uh, Los Angeles as well as in Sacramento. The other thing, just to point out in closing, is that we focus very much on the very real health impacts of what's going on at Fukushima and continuation of nuclear power, you know, the safety issues and the the related waste issues, like, you know, what do we do with that in terms of the spent fuel ponds that themselves are liable to the sorts of accidents in Fukushima or even a terrorist attack. But we have to also consider, and it's certainly at the heart of PSR's work as well, uh, what the nuclear weapons proliferation potential of this whole nuclear renaissance is. When we're thinking about the U.S.-India nuclear deal and a lot of other deals that are going down to promote nuclear power around the world, there's a a well-established connection uh, between uh, those programs, the so-called Adams for Peace, et cetera, programs, and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Well, you know, this sounds like it's a topic to have you back at another time to enlighten us on these kinds of connections as well. Uh, but for today, I really want to thank you for the the clarity that you brought to the clarity you brought to the complexity of uh, radiation. It's not just that we're confused; it's that there seems to be confusion built into the system and imprecision. But at the same time, I think the bottom line is none of this stuff is good for us, and we really need to find a way to um, stop its production and get it out of the world to the best of our abilities. That's absolutely right, and again, the take-home point that I may have meant to get to, but uh, to cut through a lot of this stuff, is that all of the international bodies have weighed in on this. We're talking about the the various uh, National Academy of Science, biological effects of ionizing radiation reports that have come down, bottom line, that there is no safe level of radiation. So there's that mystification coming out of Japanese authorities, our own, to sort of poo-poo this stuff. And even though, you know, like in some of the complexity, it's hard to sort of put your finger, what do you do with this dose, with this dietary recommendation, whatever, the bottom line is there is no safe dose. Pregnant women, children are most vulnerable. That's what we really have to keep in our mind's eye on all of this in terms of taking the steps to make sure that nothing like this happens again and we start phasing out nuclear power and moving on to safer forms of energy. Mm, from your mouth to somebody in power's ears. Robert M. Gould is a uh, is president of the San Francisco Bay Area Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, moving on to uh, another piece of news from Fukushima, that uh, while the government has taken the position that no one outside of the vicinity of the uh, Fukushima plant is likely to suffer health effects from radiation, uh, we just heard some contradiction to that in Dr. Gould's um, sharing, um, 
Many Japanese, especially parents of young children, are doubtful. Now, this comes from the August 22nd issue of AERA, A-E-R-A magazine, which is published in Japan. It ran a feature of on contamination in the Kanto region, which is distant from Fukushima. And this is the telling piece of it. Uh, it told the story of a mother in Saitama Prefecture who, in the absence of direct government support, arranged to have a sample of her daughter's urine tested. The test indicated that despite the woman's stringent efforts to protect her fifth grader from exposure, the result was 0.4 becquerels of cesium-137 per kilogram of urine. Now, to get an idea of how this mother was protecting her child, she bought produce from Kyushu, which is the southernmost of Japan's most major islands and the furthest away from Fukushima you can be and still be in Japan. She bought 80 eggs at a time from a mail-order company, also in Japan's far south, so she did not source her eggs from anywhere in the north. She used bottled water exclusively, and she washed clothes, umbrellas, and the walls and the floors of her home every day to keep the radiation out, and still her daughter is showing the signs of contamination. So there really is, in the words of the uh, song by Holly Near, there really is, there's, there ain't no place you can run. There's no way to get away from this. Um, however, there has been an outbreak of nuclear sanity, and that is that the Vermont Senate voted Wednesday to block the state's only nuclear plant from operating after its license expires in 2012. Now, Vermont is the only state in the country with a law giving its legislature a say over a nuclear plant's relicensing. The Senate's 26-4 vote against a 20-year extension of Vermont Yankees license marks the first time lawmakers have formally weighed in on the question. With the Vernon reactor, Vernon, Vermont is where it's located, leaking radioactive tritium into groundwater and its owners accused of misleading state regulators about underground piping at the plant, even senators who might have supported the license extension said they would have a difficult time doing so now. Quote, if the board of directors and management were, were infiltrated by anti-nuclear activists, I do not believe they could have done a better job destroying their own case, said Senator Randy Brock, a Republican from Franklin, who had previously supported an amendment calling for building a new nuclear reactor in Vernon. Then he voted against the extension. Now, all of this comes in only a week after President Barack Obama has announced loan guarantees for building two new nuclear reactors in Georgia. A week ago, President Obama called for a resurgence of fission reactors as a source of electric power for the country and said last week he was making about $18 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars, in federal loan guarantees available for a facility envisioned for Burke County, Georgia. It would be the first U.S. nuclear power plant in nearly three decades. He said, quote, investing in nuclear energy is a necessary step towards reducing U.S. dependence on foreign oil. He said nothing about solar, wind, geothermal, any of the more uh, ecologically responsible ways and sustainable ways of generating energy. So President Obama, hope? I don't think so. Not on this basis. Meanwhile, turning to one of the more reliable, sober thinkers on the planet, Lloyd's of London. Now, Lloyd's of London is known for uh, its insurance policies. They will take risks on just about anything. However, 
Lloyds of London will not write a policy protecting a nuclear power plant. Further, insurance companies throughout America have begun writing nuclear exclusion clauses into homeowners' policies, preventing insurance payments for any nuclear-related loss. You might want to check your homeowners' policy just to see what they've got there in the fine print. So on to holistic healing. I know our guest today is a uh, Western medicine doctor, and he has a particular perspective. And then there are people who are more alternative in their perspective, and they have some thoughts about what can be done to support our health and help the uh, transit of any radioactive materials we might ingest out of the body. Uh, this comes from a site, orthomolecular.org. Uh, it is a site dedicated to orthomolecular health and how to maintain it through supplementation and other uh, health practices. Uh, this information comes from Damian Downing, who is an MD. And in talking about antioxidant vitamins, it's easy to access these, and uh, it's very difficult to overdose on them. And uh, his recommendations are to take vitamin C, vitamin E, and our lipoic acid. The doses of these are listed on orthomolecular.org forward slash resources. You can find it there. In addition, he mentioned two other uh, supplements that I haven't encountered before. One is glutathione. This is an amino acid known to chelate certain minerals. Now, there's no evidence that it works on radioactive ones, but if you're cleaning out your body, you might as well clean out your body. Uh, it's a crucial antioxidant, according to this site, which will protect against radiation damage and help mop up the toxic molecules produced. And uh, they are suggesting 1,000 milligrams three times daily. As always, check with your healthcare practitioners. This is provided as information. This is not diagnosis. But I think we all deserve to be as um, aware as we can possibly be about what our alternatives are. Uh, and they're also saying that you can use an oil-based version of glutathione, rub into the skin, and absorb it transdermally. The other supplement that this site recommends is phosphatidylcholine. They said that if you turned up in, the, in Eastern Europe in an ER with acute radiation exposure, they would immediately give you an IV shot of phosphatidylcholine. Now, this substance is found in egg yolks, organ meat, and lecithin supplements, and it is easily absorbed into our membranes. There is no human experimentation on it, so um, but this is backed up by certain doctors uh, in their analysis. You can take it as liquid or capsules, at least a tablespoon or the equivalent daily with food. And uh, truly what this site is about is building our health and helping the transit out of our bodies of toxic materials. There's all kinds of toxicity that we absorb on a daily basis. And uh, this is another way to protect and preserve our health in the wake of Fukushima and unknown amounts of radiation that are coming our way every day. So in terms of activism, uh, next week on Nuclear Hot Seat, I'm going to be interviewing Jean Stone who's with ROSE, which stands for Residents Organized for Safe Environment. They're the group spearheading the protests of the San Onofre power plant, and Jean will be giving, an up, giving us an update on the uh, September 
scheduled licensing hearing or hearings. It's still not certain whether there will be one or two. But he will give us an update on where we stand with that. This is about relicensing San Onofre for another 20 years after its license expires. Uh, these will be taking place in September. So that's for Southern California. In the rest of the company, as we announced last week, the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future is coming to towns around the country, and they're going to be open in a town meeting style to people telling them exactly what they think and feel about nuclear radiation. The next one coming up is September 13 in Denver, Colorado. And it's going to be at the Embassy Suites at 1420 Stout Street in Denver. I assume you know where that is. Um, we will also post this information on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. That's www.nuclearhotseat.com. So in closing, I want to offer this bit of nuclear math because I did get the confirmation that Fukushima, excuse me, that Chernobyl leaked for 10 days after the explosion. All of that radiation damage was done in 10 days, and by the end of that 10 days, it was entombed under boron, zeolite, and concrete in what is referred to as the sarcophagus. So that was 10 days for Chernobyl. This is now day 179 for Fukushima, and Fukushima has three melted-down nuclear reactors with spent fuel pools sitting right outside of them. So that means 179 times 3, we've had 537 nuclear leak days since Fukushima began. Divide that by the 10 days of Chernobyl, and we have the equivalent of 53.7 Chernobyl. So the next time you hear somebody wondering whether, you know, Fukushima, gee, is it worse than Chernobyl? Uh, yeah, I would think so. So this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 6, 2011. You can find us and links to our previous programs by going to NuclearHotSeat.com or you can check on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page. To get all of these reports, uh, you can go to iTunes and subscribe so you never miss a single episode. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that now that we've had our nuclear wake-up call, don't go back to sleep. Be well, stay safe. I'll speak with you again next Tuesday. Bye-bye.